bring all of this of all of these things to the table. And so our tendency though is to is to read the text through the lens of our experiences and our circumstances. And so we should we should apply the Bible to our circumstances, but we don't want to interpret the Bible through our circumstances. There's a big difference. And so one of the most important rules, and we talk about this often as we preach through books of the Bible, one of the most important rules in Bible interpretation is to, is to understand the context, to, to pay attention to the context, and it's especially important in passages like this, because if we disregard the context here, we will misunderstand and misapply and misuse this particular passage, and many people have done that with 1 Corinthians 7. Some want to treat this chapter as if Paul's writing this complete final, systematic teaching on marriage and singleness and divorce. Here's Paul's teaching on Christian marriage. This is what it is and what it's about and what it means and what it's for. But that's not at all what Paul's doing here. Not at all. He's responding to, very, to a very specific matter that was raised by the Corinthian church and, and then some questions that are attached to that. And so he's not answering all of our questions He's not, he's not answering all of our what ifs and what abouts and, and, and what about this and all those things that we want to raise and when we think about our lives and about situations we're aware of and people's lives that we love. He's not dealing with that. He leaves a lot unsaid here. If Paul were, if Paul were uh, writing and trying to give us this comprehensive treatment on marriage and divorce and singleness, he, there would be a lot more that he would say than what he says in this chapter. We understand that. There's a lot of good teaching here on marriage, but it's not comprehensive. And so just think about it. If you take what Jim just read, if you take that out of context, what does it read like? I'm, I'm thinking about this. It kind of reads like this crusty old bachelor who, who has little interest in or time for women in marriage. I mean, this is what it sounds like. You, you should all be single. But of course... There are some poor, pathetic people out there who, who just don't have enough self-control to be single. So I guess for those weaklings, you'd better get married. That's, is that, is that kind of what it sounds like at a first reading? Uh, like, like Paul's just grudgingly permitting marriage as this undesirable concession for those that, that, that have struggles dealing with the lust of the flesh. And so if you're married, you kind of, kind of feel second rate when you, when you, if you, if that's how you think of it. But that's a complete misunderstanding of what he's saying. And I think it'll be clear by the time we're done this morning. So Paul picks up in chapter 7, right where we left off last week. And so remember last week, both in our worship service and in our Sunday school hour, we're continuing that series this morning on the body. But we talked about how the, how the church in Corinth had been infected with this this. We, we, this Greek dualism that, that, that pitted the physical, the body against the spiritual, that s- spiritual part of the, of the human, the, the soul. And it, and it saw those as, as opposing forces. And so that led to this devaluing of the body, the physical body. And so the body doesn't really matter. The, the soul is all that matters. The spiritual part of man is everything. And the body is nothing. And so that, that kind of cultural virus, it had, it had made its way into the church, and it manifested itself in a couple different ways within the church. And so and the church seems to have been divided into these kind of factions along how they thought about the body, how they responded to that. And so some said, well, because the body doesn't matter, we can do whatever we want with our bodies. 
And, and so they were, these were the, call it hedonists. And so their, their slogan, if you remember from last week, was, all things are lawful for me. I mean, we can be as immoral as we want to be because the body doesn't really matter. And Paul dealt with that in chapter 6, and this is how they were living. Others in the church, though, who held to the same view of the body, that it doesn't really matter, they, they went to the other extreme, and we could call them the ascetics. And so they basically said, since the body doesn't matter, since it's worthless, it's bad, then, then we should have as little to do as possible with our bodies. We should try to escape the body and its demands. And so they did this through deprivation and starvation and isolation, and as we see today, celibacy. So they also had a slogan. And, and theirs isn't nearly as catchy as the hedonists. It's not as good. But, but they, they had this slogan, and you see it in verse 1 there. These are their words. This is not Paul's words. These are their words. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So th- these were the kind of the Corinthian hardliners or the, the hyper-spiritual ones in Corinth. They had this view of the Christian life. And so on one side, there's this one group with this kind of unguarded sexual promiscuity. And then over here you have this group that has this kind of prudish hostility toward, toward sex altogether. And so they saw it as dirty and unworthy of a Christian and something to be avoided. So just as we looked at last week, this kind of hedonistic sexual immorality was wrong and is damaging to the Christian community, so is this other view. And it's these people now that Paul is addressing here in chapter 7, these super spiritual ones who want nothing to do with the body and therefore nothing to do with sex. But taken together, we see in chapters 6 and 7 here, we have Paul giving us this Christian vision of human sexuality that defies both of those extremes. He's not like picking sides and saying, you know, take this over here. No, he's just cutting right through the middle and he's layering the gospel over Christian sexuality. And he's holding out to us instead this beautiful picture of sexual union within the bonds of Christian marriage and this beautiful life of celibate singleness. And so it's at once both deeply affirming, even celebratory of sex and sexuality, all the while at the same time carefully locating it within God-given bounds. That's what Paul does here. And this is a message, church, that could not possibly be more relevant or urgent for the days in which we live. All right, so I have no fancy outline for you this morning. Uh, I have labored hard, and it's not going to be evident to you, but I have labored hard this week to be clear and concise and to have kind of a lightness of touch um, with, this, with this message, and I fear that I have failed miserably. Um, and you may agree with that when we're done. Instead, I, 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 it's like I'm throwing out on your plate this huge slab of raw beef, and, and that's just what you're getting this morning, and I hope it's not too indigestible for you. Uh, but, but what we're basically going to do, we're going to walk through the text three times, and we're going to, as we go through the text, we're going to see kind of three different perspectives that, that, that come out of here. And so first, we're going to see this Corinthian perspective, and, and we're going to see what's behind Paul's responses to this church. What was the matters? What are the questions they're raising? And so the, this, this Corinthian super spirituality that Paul's reacting to. Second, we're going to see Paul's perspective. We're going we're gonna to look at, at, quickly at his responses in, 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 to each situation that was raised by the, the Corinthian uh, hardliners there. And then third, we're going to talk about our perspective. 
and, and will draw out some of the relevant principles and applications for us in our own context. All right, so first, let's walk through. Let's just see, and then we'll, let's do this very quickly, but the Corinthian, the Corinthian super spirituality. What, what's going on behind this, what, what Paul's words here, what's he saying? He's saying? Again, the second half of verse one, it should be in quotation marks in your copy of the scriptures, is it? The translation you're using? I hope so. Okay, so that's showing that this is, again, another Corinthian slogan. This is one of their mottos of, of the, the super spiritual faction in the church there. So he says in verse 1, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some translations, some of yours may say uh, a more literal translation, not to touch a woman. Now, he's not talking about cooties or something like that. He, that's a, that's a, a common euphemism for, for sexual relations. And so... Um, so he says, not, not, it's good not to have sexual relations with a woman. They said essentially this, we're new creatures. We, we, we've been changed. We've been brought into this new age of God's kingdom. And, and now we're beyond such worldly things as, as sex and marriage. And, and basically, they didn't just think Christians who aren't married should stay single and celibate. They're saying, no, even if you're married, you should abstain from sexual intercourse. And so their motto, it's, it's good for a man not to touch, not to have sexual relations with a woman. And, and while it's not explicit in the passage, it's not hard to reconstruct their, their application of that general idea through Paul's responses here. And so we can see kind of the four suggestions that they made, which, which lie behind here Paul's words and Paul's responses and answers to them. So if I'm losing some of you already, just hang with me, please. Let me say for your encouragement that the hard part of the sermon is at the beginning. And so if you can just hang with me a few more minutes, it's going to be like smooth sailing across the finish line, I promise. All right, so what, what, were, what were the things that, they, that, that Paul is, is responding to, that they were saying? So first, these, these Corinthian hardliners, these super spiritual ones there, that faction within the church, they were saying to the married people, you should stop having sexual intercourse should abstain in marriage. Why? Again, take that that motto. It's because it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If you're married, you can continue living together, but you should do so without sex. You're Christians after all. That side of your marriage shouldn't exist any longer. You You shouldn't be bound to that fleshly part of who you are. Be set free from your body and those instincts and those impulses. And then they spoke to the singles and they said to them, you should never marry. No way, because it's good for a man not to touch a woman if you're single, if, you're, if you've never been married or if you've been widowed. You shouldn't ever marry or remarry. The spiritual way is a life of celibate singleness. Don't ever think of giving that up. And then they talked to the ones who were married but who were maybe struggling to abstain sexually in their marriage. Again, because of this wrong view and, he, and, and so they were saying to these people, you should just go ahead and separate or divorce. Because it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. If you find that you can't, can't live together without sex in the relationship, then you shouldn't live together at all. Break up the marriage. Separate from one another. And if, so if necessary, just, just seek an escape route to celibacy by means of divorce. That's what they were communicating. And then finally, to, to Christians who are married to unbelievers, he, the, these, these, this, these hardliners in Corinth are saying, get out, divorce them. 
Because it's good for a man not to touch a woman if you've become a Christian, but your spouse is still an unbeliever. You should leave them. Bring this relationship to an end so that they don't contaminate you. This is what they were saying. And so this this kind of super spiritual faction in in the church at Corinth, they're, they're viewing every situation, every familial situation through this grid. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And in particular, they applied it in these four ways. Let me just say, before we move on, this kind of hyper-spirituality, super-spirituality, this kind of hard-line Christianity, it often leads paradoxically to sexual immorality. What I mean is, is those who say, hey, I'm free to do anything, and those who say, I must abstain from everything. They are both setting themselves up for catastrophic moral failure. And we don't have to look hard to see evidence of that, do we? Both share a wrong view of the body that Eric's going to correct in the Sunday school hour. And so just don't leave. Um, So that's the first. I want you to see it's so important because we will misuse and misapply this passage if we don't understand what's going on behind the scene here. And, and, and so we, we, we need to see that, that Corinthian perspective on the body and therefore sex and marriage and singleness. So that's the first perspective. Second, we want to see Paul's perspective and this, this very biblical and pastoral response. This biblical and very pastoral response to the Corinthian church. And so Paul responds to these four applications of their motto in the following ways, and and at every point, he contradicts the Corinthian faction there. We're going to see that. So he says to the married, he says, have regular sexual relations. Enjoy regular self-giving. We read this just a moment ago. Other preferring intimacy together. It would be wrong for you not to have that in your marriage. To force abstinence is to bring unnecessary temptation into your marriage. So he speaks to the marrieds. And I know I'm being very brief, and we'll come back to this. Then he speaks to the singles, and he says, it's good to be single. But if you wish to marry or remarry, there's nothing wrong with that. If you find it difficult to lead a celibate life, of course you should marry without feeling guilty at all. It's good to be single, but there's no obligation on you to remain single. And then he speaks to the married who think that divorce might be preferable rather than, than continuing sexual relations in marriage, thinking that celibacy is, a, is a more noble. And he says to them, stay together. Stay together. Don't separate. Don't divorce. That's not an option to escape marital obligation. And even if the worst should happen, your spouse, if, if separation or divorce should take place, that marriage is still valid. You can't go seek another partner. Again, let me just say, I'll probably say this again this morning. Paul is not giving us, he's not dealing with all the issues and questions surrounding divorce and remarriage that that I know our minds are churning up right now. His only concern here is to stop people from initiating divorce because they think the body is evil. And, and they want to be celibate. And so the Corinthian hardliners are saying, if you, if you can't be celibate, even in your marriage, then the best option for you, if you really want to be holy, is go ahead and divorce your spouse. Paul is very clear. He reminds him of Jesus' teaching, and he says, no, don't do it. And then he speaks to the Christian, 
It's a Christian who's married to an unbeliever, and he says to them, stick with it. He's countering everything that the Corinthian uh, super spiritual ones are saying. He says, don't divorce them. Live with them. Love them faithfully. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will save them. If the unbelieving spouse is determined to end the relationship, you may, you may give in gracefully for the sake of peace, but you're not the one to, to, to end it. And so, all right, that's a very brief, very hasty overview of these verses. It may not seem like it to you this morning, but there are hours of thought and study and reading that went into that quick overview. Um, but I, I did not want you to miss the forest for all of the little trees. Because I know there are, there are verses and there are words that are, that are tricky and, and interpretation, interpretive matters. But uh, again, Paul's responding to this Corinthian claim. It's not, or excuse me, it's good for a man not to have sexual relationship with sexual relations with a woman. That's the big idea. And so he's saying here, okay, yes, that's true in part part, but it doesn't apply to married people. And if you apply it to married people, you're wrong. And it doesn't apply to single people or to widowed people who desire to be married. And if you apply that to them, you're wrong. And it doesn't apply. It can't be used as as an excuse to end a marriage. And if you use it that way, you're wrong. And he says, and it's not an excuse to separate from an unbeliever. And if you apply it in that way, you're wrong. That's what he's doing here. That, that is how I understand the argument of these first 16 verses here in 1 Corinthians. So now I get at this point you're saying, now what in the world does that have to do with us? <laughs> I mean, really? Is there anybody out there who's advocating for these kinds of views? <laughs> you got me. Is there anybody who's saying that married couples should live together but not live as married people? Like live it to be or live separate beds and stuff like that. I don't know. Um, or, or that it's wrong for singles to marry. Do you ever hear those views in the world, in the church? I'm sure there's some wacko, so don't send me articles. I'm sure that somebody's making this case. I don't need, to, I don't need that to read this week. So what, what is this passage to teach us then? Although it was addressed to very different circumstances than our own, and we have to take that into account. And although he's answering questions that we're not asking, and he's not answering questions that we are asking, there are still some vital principles, brothers and sisters, that we hear that that I think are extremely important for us in the 21st century West as Christians. And so today... um, We'll see how far we get. We're gonna, he's going to come back to the matter of singleness, so we may hold off on, on really drilling down on that application of those verses until the latter part of this chapter when he comes back to that and spends a, a, a lengthy time talking to singles. Um, but let's, let's, let's see from this third perspective. Let's kind of walk through the passage now and see our connection to this text. And so the first principle that really stands out for us here is the importance of sex and sexuality in marriage. The importance of it. Not, it's not everything, and we'll, I'll say that at the end. Uh, so, again, he's not writing a treatise on marriage. He's, he's dealing with this specific issue, but, but this importance of this does come out. Now, before we unpack this point, I, I want to acknowledge that ours is a very sexually broken world. 
And many of us are carrying deep scars because of that. Many here have been victims of sexual abuse or other forms of domestic abuse, maybe within a marriage. Some here entered into marriages, the one you're in, the one you had before, and, and you brought all kinds of baggage, wounds, fears, uh, unhealthy, unbiblical expectations, trauma, and on and on and on. Some may be in disordered marriages right now. And all of us are to some extent, so it's not like there are those good marriages and bad marriages. We're all on a scale of disorder, um, and we all have problems. As verse 5 alludes to, Christian marriages come with a target on their back, and, the, and Satan is taking aim. He is, he is firing his arrows. And, and it may feel like right now your marriage is barely holding on. And, and, and I don't doubt that the last five or six months, as so many have been stuck in their homes, that that hasn't, I'm not saying it's created these frictions, but it's exacerbated maybe some of the challenges that were already there for, for. so I, I'm aware of that as we walk through this. I, I, I just want you to know there is grace enough for whatever heartaches you're carrying into this assembly today. And there is, there is forgiveness in whatever sins you have you have inflicted on your marriage if you'll turn to the Lord and repent. And so even in the midst of the fallout from our messy, broken relationships, Jesus Christ really is enough for us. And, his, and, and there's a grace enough for us in him. So I want you to understand that. So we, so we need to acknowledge, honestly, the difficulties represented in a group this size and those tuning in. Online and the questions that this text leaves unanswered for us, that we just can't we can't scratch all of those itches. And so, but we also want to see and understand and embrace and believe God's good design. And so, the exceptions I know we can cite all kinds of exceptions in our mind. We can we can we can think of all of the complicated cases that we're aware of, and in our family and with friends and our own lives. And they but they don't invalidate the truth that the Lord has given us in his word, including here. And so I urge you, no matter what, what circumstances are in your life or in your marriage right now, let's hear what the Lord is teaching us humbly and believing what he says is true and best, not, not retreating to kind of unbelieving cynicism um, because of present or past challenges. And so I've been praying for us in that way. So I know... There are countless questions. There are tricky issues that are provoked in a sermon like this. And I, but I don't want the sermon to die the death of a thousand qualifications and, and trying to anticipate and address all of those. So I hope you can understand as we move forward. That's in my mind as we, as we say these things. So Paul here, he speaks very sensitively, discreetly, beautifully, and clearly about marriage and sex. It's, there's no... No Victorian prudishness. There's no, there's no foolish idealism about this. Not at all. It's this beautiful picture of unity and partnership and love that, that's presented here. And so let's just see some of the things that he says about the importance of sexuality in marriage. And so one of the things that's very clear is that, that intercourse is it's a giving to one another. It's a giving. It's not a privilege for one partner and a duty for the other. 
No, it's, it's a privilege for both. The husband gives to his wife. The wife gives to her husband. So he says in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. Conjugal rights. It's, it's the idea of duty, debt. It, the husband should fulfill his debt to his wife and the wife to her husband. Now, at first you say, that doesn't sound very romantic. It's not a Hallmark movie. But it is. It's showing that sex in the marriage is characterized by this mutuality. It's putting the other person first. It's a giving to each other, seeking the pleasure and joy and satisfaction and happiness of your spouse. It's this totally unselfish approach. It's not what's my right, it's what's my obligation. It's not what can I get, it's what can I give. It's not what, what pleasure will I have, it's what pleasure will I give. So he places the obligation upon us to think of the rights of our spouse rather than stand on our own perceived rights and demand, make demands of our spouse. So how much pain, how much grief, much tension, much distance has, has infected marriages because one spouse demands his or her rights at the expense of the other. Paul doesn't give an inch for that kind of thought or behavior. Instead, he's saying our attitude should be one of giving for their sake, not demanding what we believe is due ourselves. And again, he says in verse 4, in marriage, each partner gives up the rights to his or her body. He says, verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So in marriage, we, 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 are, we are not taking uh, what is ours. We are willingly giving up our own rights to our own bodies for their sake. Not forcefully demanding the rights to our spouse's body. That's not it. There is an email, I don't know if it's gone out yet, but it's scheduled to go out today, that has the weekly discussion guide in it for, um, uh, that you can talk about the, these passages that we're in together. And I have asked Susanna late last night, I had asked her to include a couple articles. And, and uh, they're from Harvest USA, a great ministry that deals with uh, sexual abuse and all kinds of areas related to sexuality from a biblical worldview. And, and uh, I just came across one of them last night, and it kind of sent me on a little trail, and two very helpful articles about, from this text. The first one is called Rescuing 1 Corinthians 7-4 from Abusers, and the second is The Whims of Erotic Attraction in 1 Corinthians 7-1-5. to Let me just say, read them. Read them. Please read them. So important. And the first one deals with issues that we really can't fully unpack in this particular context, but it speaks in, in, uh, to, to ways that some people have selfishly and harmfully weaponized 1 Corinthians 7-4 and done tremendous harm to their spouse. So read that. Second, a second article deals with our misconception of sex uh, in marriage, and we tend to categorize uh, we, we think of our marriage, we think, okay, we, we know the words agape love and eros love. And so we think of agape love as controlling most parts of our marriage. But then in the, the sexual part of our marriage, this is where eros kind of, that's the realm that it lives. And it takes the lead in that. And, and this is saying, that's not at all the case. 
That spontaneous, passionate, romantic love. No, Paul's saying here that's even sexual expression. While it will, of course, entail that romantic, spontaneous kind of love, it is led by agape. It is, it is founded in, shaped by, motivated by, sustained by, intentional, deliberate, self-sacrificial agape love. And so you see it. This is what he's saying in this passage, and this is how he's were to relate to one another. Again, verse 5, do not deprive or literally keep depriving. Stop, keep, stop depriving one another. He's still thinking about sexual relations here. Don't, don't deprive or literally defraud, to cheat, to rob. We don't have to defraud the person to whom we're joined together in love. Paul's saying it's something for both to enjoy fully. And then verse 5, even when there are, even when there are times when the couple may refrain from sexual intimacy, he, he hedges that around with, all, with these qualifications. He says it has to be by mutual consent, not just the idea of one partner. It has to be for a limited time, and it has to be for a purpose. So in this case, the purpose of devotion to prayer, kind of like a food fast. So that, then you come together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In verse 6, he's, he's careful to say, this is not a command, it's a concession. He's saying, I'm not, he's not requiring a period of abstinence in your marriage, but he's saying it, he, he permits it if it's temporary, purposeful, and, and provided there's agreement. All right, so that's quick. Isn't this a beautiful picture? Isn't this so radical? Let me just say, this isn't just an old-fashioned, radical in our modern day and sexualized culture. This was radical in Paul's day. This was revolutionary. Undermined the culture in every possible way, just as it does in our own. But this, it's, it's, he's so open and honest and hopeful and healthy. And, and this is this human and holy picture of sexuality and, and marriage. What a beautiful, joyful, liberating passage for married couples. He tells husbands and wives, I made you sexual beings. We'll talk about that this morning. Man and woman, I did that deliberately, and you're to pay attention to that part of your relationship. It's good. It's your duty to enjoy it. Husbands and wives, you're to devote yourselves to that. You're to seek to glorify God in it. Yes, glorify God in that part of your marriage, your relationship. To seek to bring happiness to the other person, to make that part of your marriage the best and richest it can possibly be by leading with this other's preferring sacrificial agape love. That's the teaching of Scripture here. And Paul affirms very clearly, very wonderfully, this importance of sexuality in marriage. Again, sex isn't, isn't everything there is to marriage, not at all. There's so much more that would need to be said, and Scripture speaks to this. But this is the focus of what he's dealing with here. Okay, yes, I will, I will hold off on speaking to singles. A second principle that, that comes out in this passage, and he's going to develop much further, uh, develop much more later in this chapter, is the value of singleness, celibate singleness. So I'm going to hold off on that. Let me just speak quickly to another principle that comes out here, and it's this very positive, this very positive approach to a non-Christian spouse. I think that Paul, Paul here's. Thinking of, so you see it in verses, in verses 12 and following. He's thinking of a person who's converted after marriage. So he's not giving license to a believer to marry an unbeliever and knowing that that's wrong, then to turn back to this passage for comfort and for help. 
That's not, the, that's not what he's doing here. He's talking about a marriage when one of them becomes a believer and the other hasn't. And so the Christian in that marriage has this challenge and opportunity of, of living every day in the closest possible way with an unconverted person. And some of you are in that boat. And you know people who are in this very situation. And the irony is, what's brought this about? It's the success of the gospel in going to the Gentiles. I mean, it's, it's, it's the gospel running like wildfire. And it, but it's created this whole series of pastoral challenges for the early church. And, and so the issue would have been a common one in Corinth, no doubt, just like it is for many in our own day. And so the fanatics in Corinth were saying to these Christians, though, you've got to leave you got to get out of that marriage. They're dragging you down. They're corrupting you. They'll, they'll, they'll ruin you. You're, you're a believer now. How can you be joined to an unbeliever? Separate yourself from them. So some of these dear brothers and sisters, they're feeling disgraced. They're feeling contaminated. They, 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 they think they're on this kind of lower level from other believers. So maybe they're saying, maybe they're thinking, why, why am I joined to this unbelieving husband or wife? Look at those other couples, those other families in our church, this husband and wife who, look how happy they are. They're married in the Lord, together in the Lord. I wish I could be free from this person so I could have the hope of enjoying that. And so Paul says to those folks, my dear friends, I want you to regard your marriage as God-appointed. It's a tremendous opportunity to show the love of Christ in the best possible way to the person to whom you were married before you believed this is a great calling in your life. And you see it in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Made holy. It's sanctified. Now, it's not sanctified in the sense of uh, uh, holy, righteous standing before God in that ultimate sense. But we, we can't be saved by near association to a Christian spouse. That's not the point. But he's, in the context, he said that's, that spouse is brought closer to the grace of God through you. Home isn't the way it used to be. There's a believer in it now. There's a Christian in the marriage. It's different. There's a temple of the Holy Spirit, like we talked about last week, now within that marriage relationship. And that will make a mark on the home, on the marriage, on that unbelieving spouse and sacrifice and trust and the fruit of the Spirit and restraint of sin and on and on and on. It's going to make a difference. And so Paul says to the Christian in this marriage, instead of being upset and distressed and envious, and starting to despise your partner, seeing them as someone dragging you down. No, see yourself as lifting them up, being a blessing to them. Being a God-appointed, sanctifying, cleansing influence that points them to Christ. And so in verse 15, though, he, he addresses the case. What happens in the event that the unbelieving spouse just chooses to say, you know what, I'm, I'm done leaving them because of their faith in Christ. And his answer to the sad situation is, is, is clear. And it's hard, but it's clear. It's if the unbeliever takes the initiative, determines to leave, the believing spouse is to let them do so and is no longer bound to them. And the deserted party is free to remarry under such circumstances. And the reason for this, he gives, is that God calls us to live in peace. And then he ends... Now, there's, there's, again, verse 16, there's interpretive differences on this. I think this is a note of hope. I think this is a, a word of hope and encouraging because of what he goes into and staying in the place you're called. 
I think that's what he has in mind. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I mean, the same gospel that broke in to your life and upon you and made you a new creature through you may break into your unbelieving spouse and make them new. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or even imagine. That's what we should be thinking about. So the Corinthians are saying, get out of the relationship. Paul's saying, pray for the transformation of that relationship by the grace of God. Corinthians is saying, Having, have nothing more to do with them. Paul's saying, no, love them. Pray for them. Seek their salvation. Instead of ending the relationship, try to, try to, try to make it better than it's ever been before. Let the fact that you become a Christian make you a better husband, wife than you've been before. Spend more time with them than you ever did. Love them more than you ever did. Be closer to them than you ever were before. Give yourself to that relationship with everything you have. And perhaps, there's no guarantees, perhaps God will work through you to bring them to faith in Christ. That's a great vision set before this person. They'll be maybe sitting together in church one day, kneeling beside one another in prayer, or if nothing else, even if one dies before the other, connecting with them in heaven one day. I realize there are, again, some who are married um, to unbelievers in this congregation. And let's take this word seriously, church. Let's pray. Pray for these dear believers and pray for their unbelieving spouses that that they might be powerfully and graciously saved by the Lord. Pray for those who've been entrusted with this vital ministry towards their husband and wife. Last thing, I think what this points us to ultimately is the necessity of sacrifice. And one of the critiques of Christian view of marriage is that it sounds simplistic. And it, it, it's, it's naive that, 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 that our teaching assumes there's this norm, heterosexual monogamy. And, the, and that norm is accessible, it's natural, it's very natural, it's very livable by the majority of people. It comes naturally to most of us, and it leaves the rest behind to struggle, struggle hopelessly. That's one of, the, one of the critiques that's often leveled against Christianity. The problem with that is that whatever, what the Bible calls us to doesn't come natural to anyone. Nobody, married or single, same-sex attraction, uh, heterosexual attraction, nobody naturally lives a life of self-denial and sacrifice and purity. No one. The Bible calls us to do something that comes naturally to no one. It calls us to deny our self-focused, fallen, fleshly desires, ambitions. It calls us to lay down our lives for the sake of others and to serve Christ. It reminds us that our ultimate satisfaction will never be found in marriage or being single or anything. We're called to this gospel pattern to follow the example of Jesus. Philippians 2, 7, to to Jesus who took on the form of a servant for the sake of the church and, and emptied himself and became nothing to serve his bride. And so in celibacy and in marriage, the, the pattern is of self-giving for the good of others, surrendering for the good of the other, laying down our lives for the others. And so we, we need to recapture the beauty of living in such a way that it's not about us. And that is not natural to us. I, I, I go even further to say it's not possible for us on our own. Jesus not only modeled this for us, but he called us 
to this and called us to this, but he has provided the power for this. And he's provided the forgiveness and the grace that we need when we fail to do this. So he gave his life that we could be rescued, not just from our difficult circumstances, but could be rescued from ourselves and our sin and the, and the just punishment that we deserve for our self-centeredness. And he gave up his life so that we could have the power to live for him and love others. Do you want to flourish in your marriage? You want to flourish as a single, as we're going to talk about in a few weeks. That's the path. It's clinging to the greatest love that's ever, ever, ever been known. There's no way to live this life apart from Jesus. But with him, it's not just a possibility, but it's, it's something that's accessible to us in him. Let's pray. God, our Father, we, we confess these are, these are hard truths. And as we wrestle with them and seek to apply them faithfully in our own particular context, we, we pray now for grace. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to live in, in joyfully submission and obedience to King Jesus. Even as this touches upon us in our singleness or in our marriages, even when our marriages are not ideal but are painful, broken, sources of wounding. May the gospel indeed in each circumstance be this change agent for the glory and praise of your name. And may it start that change in us, in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.